tell people starting, just keep at it. Just keep at it and get out there and spread the word about what they do and understand that it takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods-Butler. Hello, friends. Today's episode is a continuation from the last one where we talked to personal historian Latisse Stewart about how she grew her business, Portraits and Words. This week, we're going to hear some really great practical advice about how to have that money conversation with clients. Latisse shares about how much she charges for her life story books and how that has changed over the years. We'll also hear about her personal experience hiring editors to write first drafts of a client's book and how she structures a partnership that she currently has with another personal historian, Dexter Cirillo. I hope you enjoy today's interview. Well, okay, I want to shift to a new topic. Um, and this is something that you have helped me with too, just recently. And I it's it's brilliant in its simplicity, and that is practicing your sales talk out loud. Um, you gave me some basically some verbiage that you use, and you told me that I think it was advice from your husband on just practice it out loud. Talk a little bit about that and what that can do for us. Well, what you're talking about is practicing talking about money, about the cost of the project, right? Right. Yes, 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 yes. And I think it's something that everybody in this business just wrings their hands over. And I think particularly women. I have to say it's. Uh, I think it's primarily a woman's um, insecurity about talking about money and pricing. And in the APH, that was the number one issue people wanted to know how to not only how to price but how to talk about pricing because when somebody says to you well what do you charge you know I I watch people in APH just wringing their hands well it depends on what do you want and we can price it different ways and so I started early on just doing a one package price I just charged whatever I charged at the time for the books rather than uh, pricing for the interviews, for the transcription, for editing by the hour. I just thought it was a lot easier to say, you know, a book costs this. I think when I started out, um, I just pulled a number out of the air and I think, I can't remember, I I think it was $8,000 for an entire book and that included, you know, the printing and binding and I had so many clients and I almost went crazy because it was so much more work than I thought. So every time I'd get a new client, I would just increase the price. I went from 8 to 12 to 15, 18, 20. And eventually, you know, I worked up to where I was charging. Uh, What I charge now is 65 to 85,000 for a typical book. So, when people ask me what I charge, I just would, like everybody else, kind of hesitate. So going back a couple of years, I had a client, and at the end of the interview, I was going to ask him for a retainer. And, oh, I just 
hemmed and hawed. I, I asked my husband, who's a lawyer who charges a high rate by the hour, as lawyers do, you know, I said, what? I, I don't know. How can I say this to him? He said, look, you just need to say, Charles, what I'm going to need from you now is a check for $2,000 for a retainer. And he said, practice it out loud. He made me practice it, <laughs> saying it. Um, so when the day came and after the interview, and I said, well, Charles, what I'm going to need now is a $2,000 retainer. Uh, and he said, without batting an eye, well, why don't I give you four and we'll just work from that. So, <laughs> so then I started practicing my saying what I charged, just hearing it out loud. So what, as I said, whatever the price was, but, but now my line is a typical book project cost between sixty-five dollars to $85,000, period, quiet. I don't say another word, you know, and let, let them speak. I mean, they can either say, oh, gee, I didn't know it was so much. And, and my answer to that is, oh, it's so much work, hmm. you know, and, and then, but I don't defend. And, but the practicing of saying it was so important. And I would just walk around the house saying a typical book project costs sixty five to $85,000 <laughs> so that it would roll off my tongue. So I think that was the advice you were talking about, right? It's exactly the advice I was talking about. And I, I recently put it into play myself when I was meeting with a couple of um, uh, people in the financial world who weren't thinking about doing books for themselves or their family, but they were wanting to talk to me about uh, for their clients so they could ref have somebody to refer their clients to because it's a great service and it makes them look good to, to bring people like us, you know, into the attention of their clients. And afterwards, um, after this lunch meeting, the, the one gal said, boy, you just came out with the numbers really confidently. And I'm so impressed with that. <laughs> and then, and then we talked a little bit further and she happens to do private insurance for people um, who have, art collections and boats and things like that. And, and we laughed because she said, well, you know, it is a high price, but it's, you know, half of what the, the, um, the insurance costs on, you know, some of my clients art collections. So it's all putting things in perspective, but, but you're right. I, and that is exactly what you, um, your conversation with me, you allowed me to see that, we can say these things. We can look somebody in the eye. We don't have to hem and haw. And as a matter of fact, you come across much better if you don't. And practice it. That was the golden key for me, going around and practicing it. And Latisse, this is the funny thing. Now, I kind of recognize when I'm listening to people talk about what they do. It usually has something to do with their profession or their fees. And I can see the ones who have said it over and over and over again and are probably practicing it in, you know, in their bathroom mirror. You can just tell. I always thought those were the people that just had a knack for being natural about these things, but I don't think that's true. I think it's people who are doing what you're, what you're suggesting and going over it again and again out loud. Um, it, it makes things so much easier when you get face to face with somebody. Well, it does. And and then you develop a confidence that it's worth it. And you you're worth it. Your time's worth it. The product's worth it. And you know, if if you um ask somebody, well, what do you charge for a massage? You know, it's $110 an hour or whatever it is. 
that's the price. You know, they, they don't they don't defend it. They don't. And it's either worth it to you or it's not worth it to you. Uh, and you get to make the decision. But it is just really important to have that confidence. And it makes you so much more professional, as, as you said, just to I be agree. able. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's especially for the people who are just starting out. It's really difficult because you you're hungry for the work is so you're hungry for the work because a you need to put food on the table and b you need those samples you need you need to get some momentum going where you can show people that you've done multiple projects and so i think that's the vulnerable time because you're thinking to yourself okay well i could say twenty five thousand dollars but what if they're only really willing to pay 15 um so you have to kind of uh in your mind you have to know what not only what you're worth, but um, what you're going to do it for. And then don't, and then you can, so even if you're pricing lower than what you hope to price someday, stick with it and use the advice that you're giving, Latisse, you know, stick with it and, and look the person in the eye and practice saying those numbers. And, um, and then, like you said, you can increase each time. Yes. And you know, if, if you're starting out and really, you just want the work. You want to get that book sample, as you said. If you say, let's say you're starting out at 15000 and you say that, and somebody says, oh, gee, that's too much. And then, you know, you can say, well, what were you thinking? And if someone says, well, 10000 then you could say, well, we could talk about adjusting the scope of the project. You know, if you want to have a conversation, maybe there is something I can do for you for ten thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, because there might be. Um, you might just concentrate on the grandfather's war period or something. But if you just don't want to let the project go, you might be able to rework the conversation a little bit. You know, I'm at the point in life where. I, I just don't want to do that. It's just what it's worth it to me and my time. And that, right. you know, that's it. But I could certainly see when you're starting out, um, not negotiating the price. Don't think of it as negotiating, but as changing the scope of the project to meet what they have in mind, the, the price. Mm. Yeah, that's good advice because then you're not devaluing what you're offering. You're not saying, "Oh, okay, I really want to get fifteen thousand dollars for doing a whole life story book, but I'll take ten thousand for it." You're saying, "Well, my time and my skills are worth so much, so I can, I can shrink down the project to fit your budget." Um, and that's that's that was sort of my mentality when I first started off. I I I never came out and said this to any client, but my philosophy was no budget is too small. So I created projects according to what budget people told me they had. Um, And it was a lot of work because small in theory wasn't always small in practice. So very often I ended up doing a lot more work than I had expected I would be doing. But it gave me, um, you know, it gave me a really good running start to to creating this business. And then as time went by, I didn't have to take on those smaller jobs. Um, and that's, that's helped a lot. Um, so you have 
not only um, really nice projects that you do, but uh, you have so much work that you do have. I don't know if, if she's a partner or a, I don't know how you, how you call her, but Dexter Cirillo is on your website as working with Portraits and Times. Can you talk a little bit about that, at bringing somebody on board and, and how does that work? Well, you know, originally, um, I was just so busy. I mean, it's a time-consuming project. Uh, I mean, time-consuming profession. And I'm older and have grandchildren, and I just didn't want to work as much. And I met a woman who asked me, she said, oh, I want to do what you do. Um, can we talk? And so I said, well, you know, why don't you come on? It wasn't originally as a partner, just sort of, if I get a project, I can talk to you. If you're interested in doing it, you know, you get a certain percentage. And um, it worked out so well. And and she is really terrific. She's a great writer and she's fast. And um, she's a little bit older than I am, but she has more energy, I think. So it's just been a, it's been a great collaboration. And so I, I've been really, really happy with it. And we've worked out we do a split, you know, whether it's if it's my client that I brought in and she takes it over, then I get a certain percentage. If she brings in the client, uh, but she's taking advantage of being work, working for this company and having the website and that's how she can market herself, um, it, this, the split is less, but I still get get something. So we just worked that out and it's really worked out well. Now, is she the first person that you tried this with, yes. or were there others? Okay. Oh, you got lucky right off the bat then, right? Well, in the beginning, I did hire people to do some editing. And um, so I, I just was so determined to keep the interviews to myself, because that's what I really, really love. Right. That's where the fun uh, is. Yeah, I just love the interviews. And so then I would turn over the transcripts. I'd have someone else... Um, you know, transcribe it because I'm not that good of a typist. And so then this person would get the transcripts and then they would put it to organize it and edit it the way we had talked about and w- what I was expecting. And some people were really good at it, but it's still, I had done the interviews and, and I had my own kind of writing style. So I would spend time kind of reworking and it was just more time. And then, of course, it was so much work on their end for the editing that they wanted more money that was really cutting into my profit. Uh, mm. And it, it it just got harder to do that way. But you do have to, if you want to, if you have enough clients and you really need someone to help you and you want to just start with hiring an editor to do that first draft, um, I think it's only fair to pay them well and just know that you're going to make less on it all right yeah and it and you know you're saying making less but if you can take on more jobs exactly. if the demand is there and you can take on more jobs and that's really the only way to grow as a business because you i mean i found very early on that i hit my limit on hours that i could work uh, you know there's only so many hours that i can do that i can put in each day working um and if you have 
if you have outside help, then you're able to take on more clients, more projects, and um, and you can really grow. Um, so when you would hire these editors, and I, I realize that you don't do it anymore, but when you were hiring them, were you giving them a project price to do the first draft or were you paying them by the hour? Mm, I did it both ways. The by the hour didn't work as well for me because I, I had no sense or control over it. You know, I, right. how, mm. how good a writer, how fast they were. So um, unfortunately, there are a lot of writers out there who are really just hungry and want to write. So, you know, you, I say unfortunately because I wish everybody had lots of work and at great pay. But there are people that will write for, I don't want to say nothing, but it would be easier to say, look, I have $5,000 and I need a first draft. And I think it's, you know, you can find people who are willing to write. But I do think the project price for me ended up working out better. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, in, you know, talking about the hungry writers out there. That's Rutger Brunig, who was on the podcast. I can't remember what episode it was, but he has started a company called the Story Terrace or Story Terrace. And he, uh, his model is um, high, matching up clients with freelance writers wherever they live. Mm-hmm. And I think he used one of the, I, I can't remember the name of the services, but they're, you know, freelancers.com or something mm-hmm. like that. And he finds writers and then they will take on the job if they're local to the to the storyteller um i don't know how profitable that is for the writers um but again you know they're getting really great experience and they're they're doing what they want to be doing which is writing um well that's true but i would my concern would be that writing is only half of this job the interviewing's the other important element and so if you're just hiring a freelance writer people may be great writers but maybe they can't really interview or maybe they don't really understand yeah life story what all that's about so i think there's some people have tried this formula of just sending writers in and not paying much and then getting books produced so it would be interesting as you said to know how how well they're doing which I, I don't know. I don't. I haven't seen any numbers or anything, so I'm, I'm not privy to any of that. It is an interesting model, and I think it's for low-cost life stories. Um, so for people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford something, I, I, I assume they're all custom-made. But I think you know maybe how many photos. There's limitations on that kind of thing. So, and I probably shouldn't even be talking about it because I don't know the, the specifics right. on it. Um, but yeah, I've I've um, I've thought a lot about bringing on editors to help with some of my projects. I haven't done it yet, but it is something that I'm interested in doing. Um, and I guess you just sort of have to work it out as you go along because a, you know, what kind of writers are they? And uh, once this was quite a while ago, I talked to a friend who is a journalist and he because he had come out of the world of journalism, he couldn't wrap his mind around, um, practice of taking somebody's words and not having them be quotes and exact <laughs> quotes of that too. So, you know, it's just, it's this, the, the, these kinds of books are just completely different from how, you know, most other types of books. So 
So it, it, it wasn't going to work with him, obviously. <laughs> yeah, you have to find somebody that you really mesh with on on the concept of of the books and um, right. how they're going to read. Right, yeah. And I know Christine Norton, she has Forget-Me-Not Life Stories in New Zealand, um, and she's been on the podcast before too. And what she does is she brings on uh, business licensees. So I think she calls them her writing partners, but she has a very intensive training. So these are women, I'm assuming they're all women. I don't know that for sure, but these are people who want to do uh, life story writing, um, but they need a little bit of help getting their businesses up and running. And so um, she, it sounds phenomenal. She brings them in for, I think a weekend long training and it's not only on the business side of things, but on interviewing skills and on yep. how you're going to be writing these stories. Um, and I know, Latisse, that you had done back when you had all those phone calls after the Good Housekeeping interview or uh, article, you created a manual for people and you were addressing things like that, right? And And I think you and I have talked before that interviewing is really one of the most important skills. So can you talk a little bit about that? How some advice that you could give to people who are just starting off doing these types of interviews? Well, I, there are a lot of books written about good interviewing. And I think people ought to read them. Because I've talked to people who are just starting, they say, Oh, well, I have a list of questions. And I go in with mm-hmm. my list. And I just have a totally different approach. I think you just go in with your innate curiosity and love of story and get people talking and listen. Um, And the natural follow-up question emerges. But if you're trying to force the interview through a list of questions, it's not as natural and and you just lose so much good information. and a lot of people, believe it or not, don't really realize that you're supposed to ask open-ended questions rather than yes or no questions. You know, they're going down their list of things and they just, mm-hmm. were you born in New Orleans, Louisiana? Yes. Well, you know, <laughs> that's, that, that, that's not much of a, of a story. But, uh, and all the words, just phrases that you can say, let people talk and then say, Oh, tell me more about that. Can you explain that? Why do you think your mother did that? Uh, you know, things that can draw people out. That To people like us who've been interviewing for years, it's just very natural. But for someone who s- thinks that they're a writer and so they can do this business, don't really understand so much the importance of the interviewing techniques. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, I tell people, don't don't take notes. I don't know if you do that. I always have a notepad. I do not. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I take notes uh, like crazy right after the interview when right, I'm in my car right. because there's because inevitably once the I turn off the tape recorder, then they're going to launch into something else. Right. <laughs> it happens almost every time. Oh, I, so. know, I know. That's, that's so true. But I always have a little reporter's notepad next to me with a pen and not on my lap, but sometimes I need to jot down high school because in the interview process, maybe we've skipped over something and now they're, they're into another whole phase of life, but they're in the middle of talking and it's a wonderful thing and I don't want to interrupt them. So I've jotted down that word. And at the end of that um, 
thought process, what, whatever the interviewer is saying. Then I said, well, let's, let's go back to high school. You know, so I do jot down little notes, but I don't take notes as we're going along. And I mm-hmm. just, the important thing is to maintain that eye contact. Uh, there is one person I know who's got a very successful business and she knits through all the interviews. <gasps> she is the interviewer. Yes. She's the personal yeah. historian and she brings knits. her knitting and oh, she knits. My gosh. And she says that it's important to her. She's able to listen. I, I, I can't even imagine because, you know, it's just so important to, to me to look people in the face and to respond with expression. It's another thing I tell people during the interview because everybody's recording these interviews is to be again, practice or be very aware of your nonverbal responses. Because in the beginning, I I get these tapes back and uh, I'd hear myself, oh, oh, wow, oh, no, you know. And and kind of cringeworthy, isn't it, listening to those early ones? (laughs) It is. And it's only important if you're going to give the recordings to the uh, narrator, which I always did after I did the book. I would give them the raw recordings. And it just would, yes, it was cringeworthy. So I tell people in the beginning, I say, look, I'm going to try not to respond verbally on on the recording, but um, don't think I'm not interested. I'm listening intently. And you do that with, you know, raising your eyebrows, smiling, shaking your head, you know, you learn these responses, uh, nonverbal responses to show that you're very engaged in, in the process. Um, now, see, I don't, I haven't, um, I don't give the recordings to the people because I do want to have the freedom to express myself. And also, so this is a question for you. Um, when I'm doing interviews, I'm, I have kind of two minds going. I'm listening to them, but I'm also thinking to myself in the back of my head, how am I going to write this up? Like, how is, mm-hmm. am I getting enough information to make a, a good story out of this? And so often, um, it, and I try to time it so that it goes with the rhythm of them telling their stories. So I'll wait until they're kind of done with telling a story, but then I'll go and I'll ask them for more details because I know that when I sit down to write it, I'm going to need more details to bring it to life in the reader's mind. Um, do you do that? Oh, yes. Or, uh, oh, yes, yes, okay. yes. No, it's not just a, a straight interview that's totally chronological without going back and getting more inf- information and, you know, sometimes some chit chat about things. Um, but it's still... To me, the raw interview, hearing the voice, is just so important. After my mother died, mm-hmm. uh, someone gave us a tape, a, a social worker. She had interviewed mother for about an hour. And, oh, my, well, it took me 20 years to be able to listen to it. But oh, just, I know, well. just to hear her voice. But it's just so wonderful. So I do, I don't want to throw the recordings away. I, I just feel like they belong to the person. Um Sometimes, though, things are discussed that don't end up in the book because we've discussed not putting something in the book. So that presents a challenge. You know, oh, so much- what, do you ever edit that out before you or, or yes. do you just not give that particular uh, well, interview to the person? Well, I've, I've done both or, or in certain cases, I've not given the recordings to mm-hmm. the children because 
they discussed very private um, things and then ended up saying they didn't want to have that in the book. Or maybe I've said, you know, we talked a lot about your son being a, a, a troubled boy. And there's some things that you've shared about him that really I don't think you want to put in the book. You know, we'll discuss that. So then there it is on the tape, you know. So I just won't give either edit it out, not give that interview, or not not give the audio to the family. Yeah. And when you give the audio, that's not some sort of um upcharge that's you're just giving it to them because it's part of the whole project yeah right um sometimes if they want a couple of copies i might add a little bit to it or certainly if they want it edited because i'm not i really don't do you know the audio editing that that's very time consuming um but i did have one client who really wanted an edited version of the audio and so yeah I came up with a price and said, because I, I wasn't going to do it. I had to hire somebody to do it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, the other thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot more work than people probably oh, realize. Because yeah. that's, that's on you know, if I know that somebody really wants to do Live Story and they really, really do not have a budget for a book, I have done audio projects. And I'm always thinking, okay, it's, you know, it's a lot less time. And then I get into it. And I think, oh, what have I got myself into? No. <laughs> because I do do the editing myself. And yeah. <laughs> it, it is very time consuming. And, you know, the other thing I was going to add about the interview process, which I think beginning people may not appreciate so much, but it's just so important is pay attention and listen to the silences. Don't rush through. Mm. When a storyteller is talking about something and then there's this silence, most people feel like they need to rush in and ask the next question or if it was an uncomfortable topic, just kind of move on. And I learned to just sit and let them, you know, are they trying to remember something? Are they trying to figure out how they want to say it or if they want to say it? But some of the best details of books of, of my projects have come out by me just sitting and listening, letting people cry rather than trying to rush in and help them through it. You know, after they've had their cry, then they will tell you these wonderful things. Um, you know, it, it's just so important to not be uncomfortable with the silence. And I think that's something you learn. And that is where the difference comes in between having a family member trying to do the interviews and having you know, uh, somebody who starts off as a stranger, you know, somebody, a personal historian come in and do it because typically a family member is not going to be able to sit there and um, let the emotions happen without really wanting to get in there and help, like you said. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we can picture that with any of our parents or our kids, you know, if, if we know they're in pain, our first instinct is to, what can I do to help, right? Right. And then that, that, you know, that throws a wrench in the whole listening process and the process of allowing that person to come back into themselves and, like you said, tell these wonderful stories um, that they now have access to. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a very good point that you're making. And and it's something that is absolutely something you can learn. I mean, I know that I've listened to tapes of myself doing 
interviews early, early on. And when I listen to little snippets of tapes of recordings now, there's, there's a huge difference. I mean, it's, it's something that you have to consciously pay attention to, but you can train yourself to be a really good listener. And you need to train yourself to be a really good listener if you want to do this and, and do it well for your clients. Yeah, I, I, th- I think so. You, you will definitely grow in it if you're aware of it and, um, you know, work at it. Well, Latisse, this has been wonderful. Um, I we're you know we're about an hour into this, but I do have one question for you because mm-hmm. you've you've been very successful with what you've been doing, and I appreciate you coming on and telling everybody about how your business has grown and the things that you've done. But is there any advice that you can give to people who are starting fresh in the field? Oh boy. Um. Yeah. (laughs) Let's see. Um, Well, I think you have to love this work. And if you really don't get uh, a real sense of passion for it, listening to people's stories and helping them preserve these, uh, their life story, and understand the importance of that, then there are easier ways to make money, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of it being a good business, but also uh, it has to be, you have to appreciate the importance of it and enjoy that and relish in it. But I I would tell people starting just to keep it, if they do feel that, uh, just keep at it, just keep at it and get out there and spread the word about what they do and um, understand that it takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. And so you have to have the freedom to develop the business. Great advice. Well, thank you. And I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it so much. And thanks for thinking of me. And I hope we'll get to talk again soon. I'm sure we will. Okay, Latisse, bye. Bye Bye-bye. And that does it for our interview with Latisse Stewart of Portraits and Words. Doesn't she have some great ideas? I I find Latisse's advice to be very simple and very, very effective. And somehow it just makes me be able to think of these things in a much clearer way. She brings clarity to the whole tangled, knotty issues of things like money conversations Um, If you'd like to find Latisse or her website, take a look at today's show notes at thelifestorycoach.com, episode 63. And if you've enjoyed listening, please take time to leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for being here. Until next time, go out and save someone's story.